What exactly is apocalyptic literature and can we actually make any sense of it? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin here with Paul Kemenibi and Glenn Powell. If you've been listening to this podcast for any period of time, you know that we're big advocates for things like feasting on whole literary units, reading the Bible as a redemptive story centered on Jesus, and then living that story as an ongoing drama. There's lots of other things like this that we advocate for, and one of which is understanding and kind of playing by the rules of the different kinds of ancient literature in the Bible. So over the next couple of episodes, we're going to explore some of the key types of writing that we find in the Bible. Today, we're going to focus on apocalyptic literature, but we'll also get into wisdom literature, history, and then also poetry in the Bible. Some of these genres are pretty foreign to us, while others have modern variations that operate with different standards and kind of different rules than the ancient versions that we actually find in scripture. Yeah, thanks, Alex. This is kind of a a fascinating topic, and I think one that has oftentimes been largely overlooked. I think about, you know, my own religious studies that uh, took place primarily around in the 70s. And back in that day, we were very much into the Bible wars. Uh, Harold Denzel had written a book called The Battle for the Bible. And I feel like we were so busy defending the Bible that we kind of skimmed over or sometimes ignored these crucial practices for what Glenn calls Uh, you know, stellar Bible reading. And so I feel like I've kind of come to this late and I'd be interested, frankly, in hearing, you know, what our listeners experience has been. So some of you who grew up, you know, with the Bible, did you talk about, did you hear things about literary genres in your Bible studies and in sermons? And so, uh, would love to hear from you. Love for you to weigh in. You can contact us at info at ifbr.bible and hear about whether or not, and tell us about whether or not uh, you've had uh, education and have been informed on literary genres. So we we jump into this, you know, the ancient authors uh, chose to write using particular literary genres. And when they did so, they were essentially making a silent contract with their readers. They would write using, you know, the features of whatever type of writing. And they expected that their readers and their hearers would interpret according to those literary conventions. And so if readers ignore um, the genre of writing that's being used, really all bets are off and the reader is in danger of misinterpreting the meaning of what is written. And by the way, this isn't just, you know, Bible philosophy. Um, There are real life implications for this. I remember having a very hard conversation one time. We had our Bibles opened and it it happened to be with a relative. And this relative kept saying to me, Paul, look at the words. What do the words say? And I kept saying to this person, look at the genre, because the words mean something, and they mean something differently depending on the genre. And so uh, this has, you know, real life implications in our understanding of, of God and his, his revelation. And, you know, this 
this is the kind of thing that we see all the time uh, when somebody, for example, that happens all the time, you have that happen in your social media, somebody posts something from the onion or some <laughs> other satirical rag. And, you know, they're all alarmed, right? That, uh, you know, the world is coming to an end or something like that. And so, uh, you know, we, we need to be aware of these things. And when it comes to this specific genre, this genre of apocalyptic literature, I think it's worth saying that there's not a lot of it in the Bible, uh, but what's there is really very important. And this kind of writing played a crucial role in the latter part of the First Testament. It uh, played a role in Jesus' ministry and in his speaking, and then, of course, in uh, in the book of Revelation. Yeah, I think right off the bat, it probably would be helpful to clarify this word apocalyptic itself. I mean, in popular usage, typically that word means some horrific set of end-of-the-world disasters, but we need to understand that's not what the word means in the Bible. In the scriptures, the word apocalypse simply means a revelation of some truth previously unknown, especially a heavenly reality that impacts what's happening on earth. Uh, so maybe a better word to use for apocalypse or apocalyptic is simply unveiling. So before we get into the details of the writing itself, uh, it's also probably worth saying a word or two about the historical situation that gave rise to the birth of apocalyptic literature. What we call apocalypticism grew out of the crisis in Israel's faith that developed after the exile to Babylon. So when Israel returns home, they never match the power and glory of the time of kings David and Solomon, for example. From this time forward, God's people would face centuries of foreign domination and oppression. They were under intense and almost constant religious, cultural, military pressure. And it was in the face of this pain of always being the oppressed party rather than being the country that was kind of in charge of things that apocalyptic literature arose within Israel. Now, Israel's faith had always embraced the truth that Yahweh was the creator and ruler of all things. He had chosen Abraham's family for a special purpose, and he was working out that plan. But all of this feels different when you're a beleaguered nation whose way of life maybe even whose existence is under threat. So the crises that Israel lived through in the late First Testament period and then between the Testaments, these were severe. So on top of that, God seems to have gone silent. So there's no communication. Israel's in trouble. There were no prophets speaking to Israel in the name of the Lord to kind of tell them what's going on. So it really was a time of great crisis and pressure. And that's what led to this new way of writing kind of coming into existence. Yeah, and of course, like you said, Glenn, with no prophets, nobody kind of speaking for the Lord uh, and, and God kind of seeming to have gone silent. Obviously, you know, or maybe naturally is the better word. <laughs> uh, Israel would have some question like, where is God? Where is the creator? And what's he doing? Like, does he have a plan? Does he love us still? Does he care for us still? Uh, will he bring about the destruction of evil, the triumph of good, all these promises that he's made over the course of time? And then, of course, how long will it be before he actually does these things? And are we going to make it until then? Will we survive in the meantime? Like all legitimate questions. 
And by this time in their history, Israel had kind of become these people of the book and they process, processed their faith in God by writing about it. So this was a particular time, I think, that seemed to call for a more intense kind of literature, something that would communicate the radical nature of the threats to the nation and something that could confirm their core beliefs, but do so maybe in a more powerful way that would help sustain their faith uh, in the long run. Yeah, that's good, Alex. And, you know, it's, it's during this time of turbulence that this new uh, kind of writing emerges in Israel. And I, I think it's actually quite brilliant and hopeful. You know, it's in Israel's darkest hour that a new thing is birthed, mm. and a, a new kind of literature. And, you know, we, we may think of new kind of literature, you know, that's not a big deal, but it was indeed something that came and sustained Israel and, and fortified them you know, in the darkness, in some ways, kind of like the the genre, if you will, it was almost a genre when Winston Churchill, you know, would get in front of the nation um, sometimes daily to talk about, here's what we need to do. This is what's really going on in the world, and we can, we can live through this. So, um, you know, there were kind of early signs of this new genre of literature that started kind of at the tail end of the first testament. So you had prophets like Isaiah and Zechariah that were using some of this apocalyptic literature, or at least it had some apocalyptic characteristics. Um, but the key example for us that we want to just take a, a, a gander at today is from the book of Daniel, and then also uh, later on the book of Revelation. It's also worth noting that outside the Bible canon, that there also began to appear Jewish apocalyptic writing. And so you have the books of Enoch and Baruch and, and the fourth Ezra and the apocalypse of Abraham. These are examples of writers in that era that began using apocalyptic type literature. And it had, it had common features. There, there were like heavenly visitors. There were reports of visions. There was this, you know, electric and vivid symbolism, almost always the frequent use of, of numerology, you know. So in Revelation, a third of the trees are burned up, a third of the fish, you know, die, a third of the stars fall from heaven. So is somebody, is somebody counting all of that? Or do these numbers operate in a certain way? that's different in apocalyptic literature. So, but always there was, you know, descriptions of devastating judgment on the earth, usually at a cosmic scale. And, you know, interestingly, pseudonymity, pseudo, guys, I knew we were Pseudonymity, yeah. Pseudonymity. Who made up that word anyway? Like who makes up? I don't know. I I can't pronounce any words that have more than like six syllables. Um, So, um, but, but yeah, they, they used different names oftentimes, the authors, when they were writing this in this apocalyptic genre. Yeah, and that's super interesting, kind of these common features. And, you know, I think they all, or most of them at least, fall under the kind of umbrella of super weird stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like vivid, vivid symbolism, the numerology, all this stuff that from the outside looking in, you're just like, what on earth is going on here? Um, 
And just, about- just, just to note, there are people that have made millions of dollars trying to yes. <laughs> write, yeah. writing right. about it. Right. Writing and interpreting those. Yes. Um, I'm curious about the pseudonymity. I got it. Yes. Uh, why did they feel the need to write under different names? Well, the era of prophecy had come to an end and, you know, there had not been for several generations, these inspired speakers for God. And so um, the apocalyptic books were often written in the name of ancient heroes of the faith, like Adam and Enoch and Abraham and Baruch and Ezra, um, to give the books a greater degree of uh, validity and so that, uh, that people would take them seriously. Interesting. Right. Okay. So another, before we really jump into anything specifically from Daniel, I think it's important to get this general point out there that an apocalypse was concerned, first of all, with the immediate historical situation of God's people at the time it was written. Um, This is not unlike when we were talking about the Lord's Prayer. And I think the way you oftentimes find fresh meaning in parts of the Bible is by saying, what did this mean to the people at the time? So when Jesus was teaching the Lord's Prayer to his disciples, when an apocalypse was being shared in this late First Testament or intertestamental period, what did it mean then? And we have to say it was talking about what was happening then, the historical situation of God's people. I mean, it's easier to believe in God's rule and good intentions when David is on the throne But in a time of grave danger, people needed a fresh revelation. So that's what apocalyptic literature provides. While future events do come up as part of the visions, it's crucial to remember that the first purpose of an apocalypse was to address the crisis of the people in the moment. For example, the cruel Seleucid overseers or the powerful and brutal Roman Empire, whatever was happening at the moment. So what can seem like a series of wild and disorienting images actually gave the original audience a clearer picture of God's rule and continued good purposes for his people and for his world. By revealing the realities of the action in heaven and then the consequences on earth, which is a typical apocalyptic pattern, God's people were able to see beyond the evil of their day. Strength and patience were required a way of trusting that God and the good would still triumph. If we read these apocalypses the way their authors intended, I think that's when it can also strengthen our faith and clarify our vision for God working in the world even today. Yeah, Glenn, I think what you just said really reinforces that unveiling sort of idea, right? Kind of unveils the deeper spiritual realities that are going on behind the curtain or behind the scenes of whatever is taking place between nations or between oppressors and the oppressed and that sort of thing. So really like that unveiling word. Um, So cool. So, so far, so good. I think we've gained a picture of the rise of apocalypticism, another big word. Uh, Mm -hmm. in Israel and the new kind of writing that developed in its wake. So I think maybe the most helpful thing to do at this point would to take a, would be to take a look at an actual apocalyptic passage from the Bible. And we're going to take a look at one from the book of Daniel. So the last, last half of that book, 
uh, contains four vivid apocalyptic visions. And the first of these reports a dream vision that Daniel had, which he then wrote down. Yeah, and if uh, if you're listening and you want to actually have a taste of apocalyptic literature, I think if you start around Daniel chapter 7, uh, the book kind of segues from this original historical account to this apocalyptic literature. And uh, so take some time to read it for yourself. But uh, for the sake of time, uh, I'm just going to summarize it here and give us a little bit of flavor for it. So Daniel has a vision. He's, he's out by a river. He's got people with him. And actually, he's the only person that sees the vision. But in this vision, there's these four uh, great beasts that come up out of the sea. And they're a weird combination of bird and beast. They have wings. They have vicious teeth. They have multiple heads. They have many horns. And they all have authority. And they're all devouring people. It's really pretty scary stuff. But then, you know, the, the scene changes and the scene kind of moves to heaven. And there we hear about a heavenly council, which is kind of a fascinating idea that decisions are being made in another realm. And there are multiple people involved in the decisions. And there's the ancient one, capital A, capital O. He's described in the text and he sits on his throne to judge. And meanwhile, on the fourth beast, there's like horns and the tenth horn starts making these boastful speeches. And uh, but then quickly, this fourth beast is killed. His body is destroyed with fire. Then a new figure appears. And he's identified simply by this phrase, one like a son of man. And he comes on the clouds into the ancient one's presence in heaven. And he's given all sovereignty over the nations of the world so that all the people will obey him and he will rule forever. And uh, his new kingdom will never end in contrasts to the, you know, to the four beasts. And as you, as we can well imagine, Daniel is troubled by all of this. And so he himself approaches um, one of those around the throne of the ancient one. And he asks, what, what does this vision mean? And he's given just the briefest of explanations. He says this, the four beasts are four kingdoms in the earth, but in the end, the Holy One of the Most High will be given the kingdom and they will rule forever. All right. So there you go. It, it's a little striking, Paul, how brief that explanation is compared to the length yeah. of the vision. Yeah, for sure. But I think that in itself tells us something really important. Like there's a big idea and, and that's the essence of the apocalyptic vision. It, it doesn't appear to be like, you know, you can get lost in the details. Um, but the big idea is, yes, the kingdoms of this world are terrorizing you, but know that they won't last. God in his kingdom, which he's giving to you, that's what will last. But then we think, well, hey, but what about all those details? I mean, there's a lot going on in the, these kind of visions and in this one as well. Are we supposed to interpret all the details of those also? Um, they just there for like extra color? Like what's the deal with the details? So it's interesting that Daniel himself wants to know more. So the text says, he follows up with another question, like about the fourth beast in particular. 
especially what's up with all those horns. There are 10 horns. And it's here we get more explanation from this heavenly figure. We learn that the 10th horn has been successfully waging war directly against God's people. The 10 horns, which the word horn in the ancient world always is a symbol of authority anyway. So there's, it's not a, a difficult interpretation. The 10 horns were 10 kings. We learned that the 10th king was persecuting God's people specifically by interfering with Israel's laws and sacred festivals. So this 10th king wasn't letting Israel follow the Torah and observe their sacred gatherings. But when the heavenly court met and decided against the 10th king, he's immediately defeated and removed. And there the vision and the explanation come to an end. Yeah, it's so interesting. And like you said, Glenn, there's, there's a lot to unpack. There's quite a bit in there. And we're not going to try to exegete the whole passage, but I think there are three other kind of key takeaways that we can share on the podcast. So first, using animals to depict earthly kingdoms is kind of a common feature, I would say, in Jewish apocalypse. It's probably kind of a backhanded way to show that these arrogant uh, kingdoms are actually kind of beastly or operating in or uh, wild and, and subhuman sorts of ways. Mm. and. I think it makes it even more significant when, like you said, Paul, uh, one like a son of man appears and he's given the kingdom. And it's kind of a symbol of saying God is working to restore a human ruler rather than these beastly uh, kingdoms that are really calling the shots at this point. So the second takeaway here is that we can notice that although the earthly kingdoms are filled with pride and arrogance, it's actually the decisions that get made in heaven that determine the outcome of things. So earthly kingdoms love themselves, they trust their own power, but these apocalypses show that God is still the ruler that matters and has the final say in how things turn out. So this is an especially crucial point, I think, for those who are under the thumb of the oppressive leaders to know that these people that seem kind of all-powerful in their lives at this point aren't really all-powerful um, and that there's one in the spiritual realm who will make the final decision on things. Last point here, as we said earlier, the first point of an apocalypse is to address the current historical situation. So in this passage, the first three beasts represent the Babylonian and the Persian, and then the Greek empires. And the image of the 10 horns on the fourth beasts beast that follows is a clear reference to the 10 Kings of the Seleucid kingdom. And the 10th king who is singled out for more attention is Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, heck of a name, who <laughs> was especially hard on the Jews. He's, he was known at that time for entering the holy place in the temple of Jerusalem and sacrificing a pig on an altar to Zeus. So the end of the book of Daniel refers to this event. And the vision here emphasizes that for all of his evil and power, once heaven makes a decision against him, he's kind of toast. So the world is awful, seems out of control, but the apocalypse, I think, again, reveals that God is still fighting against evil and working towards his own ending to the story. Yeah, that's, that's good, Alex. And I think that's a pretty good summary of how um, ancient apocalyptic literature worked. And so, you know, there's all these interesting literary devices 
and these uh, strange illustrations, but they have one goal, which is um, assuring or reassuring God's people that no matter how terrible things got, you know, everything was not lost. And, and I think it might be good just to pause a second to say, you know, we sometimes, you know, it, these conversations feel academic, but think about the situation in which the Jewish people were in. I mean, it was a, a desperate situation and uh, they were being, you know, ground under the, the heel of the, the Roman empire. And so when destruction is all around, when their you know, bodies lying in the street, when um, their mangled bodies in the sand of the Colosseum, uh, these were very comforting messages that the ending of this story is not in doubt and the truest perspective in the lasting perspective is a heavenly one and uh, and not an earthly one. Mm, yep, I think that's that's exactly it. Um, so this is this is great. I think the way to read an apocalypse is what we're saying is think about the the original historical situation of Israel and how was that being addressed. But of course, always with the Bible, we're like, okay, I get it. But what does that have to do with me now in this world? And it's why I think it's such a common deal with the Bible for people to always read it and think, well, it has to be talking about me first and my situation. And that leads to so many possible errors when you're looking for, like, what is it saying about us today? as the first thing. And it's why we've always stressed on this podcast, like find out what it was saying then, what did it mean to the people who wrote it and heard it in the first place? And then as a second step, that's when we start talking about us. And so with apocalyptic, it's a really interesting thing, I think, how that goes. And like you said, Paul, a lot of people have made a lot of money writing books, kind of skipping the first step and and thinking that it's talking about us and our time exclusively, like it, that's what all the details can be interpreted about, you know, Syria or Russia or whatever today. Mm. So it is interesting to me that within the Bible itself, we already see Jesus, for example, taking the apocalypse of Daniel and reapplying it in his own time, which was later, centuries later than what this book was written. So. Here's a couple of examples. Um, in the Gospels, we get the story of Jesus' trial after he's been arrested, and he's in front of Israel's leaders before he goes to Pilate. And it's really fascinating. Jesus uses a key phrase from the passage in Daniel that we looked at today. He says, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is saying, Actually, that's that can be applied to our time. And then remarkably, Jesus claims that he is the son of man, the one who will be vindicated by Israel's God. And if you think about it, if he's the one who is like sent by God and will be vindicated by God, what position does that put Israel's current leaders in? It makes them like the beasts in the original vision. Mm -hmm. So they suddenly are casting the role of being the oppressors of God's people, that the Son of Man is coming to rescue. Of course, this was completely shocking, not to mention offensive to these leaders, but that's how Jesus uses it. And then Jesus also uses the language from the book of Daniel to describe what would later happen when Rome came and invaded Israel. 
Remember, the original book of Daniel was about the Seleucid control over Israel back in the day, centuries earlier. But Jesus uses the exact same kind of phrase from Daniel to describe what happens when Rome would come a a generation after the time of Jesus himself. So these examples from the life of Jesus, I think, show us how the key points of an apocalypse can be creatively used in later historical situations. It's not always because the apocalypse was predicting those specific events, which is the way I think so many people have have tried to read apocalypses is by saying, oh, they're predicting this or that, right? The rise of Gorbachev or this invasion and whatever. And they're constantly changing as we go through history. It's always fascinating to me that these interpretations are being updated to whatever the current event is. But within the Bible, it's really about deeper patterns in the relations between God and his rebellious creatures. So it's a it's a more creative and actually a more organic and natural way to apply an apocalyptic book to our time is to look for those deeper patterns of arrogance and pride in human kingdoms, the suffering of God's people, and and then talk about the the hope that we have and the victory of God that's coming. I like that, Glenn. I like the idea of, of Jesus being our example of how he um with integrity, took these apocalyptic passages from from the First Testament and then used them, you know, in a way that made sense. In some ways, this is just what good journalism does, right? And Jesus was was a good journalist with, with the scriptures. And it should give us a clue about how to appropriately, you know, apply biblical apocalypses to our own situation in the world uh, today. And it needs to be stated again, we, we don't look for specific prophecies in our time. Apocalypse isn't some sort of checklist that we compare to the news headlines. You know, the, the scorpions in the book of Revelation are not Russian helicopters that were, <laughs> were called scorpions. And um, what we're looking for, again, are these similar patterns of human pride and rebellion, and then especially, you know, a handle on the big hope that apocalyptic literature provides that uh, God's new creation is coming. Amen. Amen. Well, we hope you have enjoyed this first look at the Bible's apocalyptic literature. You know, this kind of writing has definitely thrown some people off since there's nothing quite like it in our modern world. I still have memories of myself sitting down and trying to read Daniel or Revelation and just thinking, you know, what on earth is this fever dream like craziness? You know, like I can't make heads or tails of this. Um, But I think like you guys said earlier, using that strong language and strong imagery to, to show what's going on in the spiritual realm, which, you know, Glenn, you talk all the time about re-enchanting the scriptures and how the Bible is kind of this bridge between the spiritual and the physical realm. And there's all sorts of sort of wild stuff going on that uh, that apocalypse unveils a little bit. Um, so I think I think that's kind of a helpful framework for for looking at it. And of course, when we read with an awareness awareness of its ancient context, it can certainly still do something for us. It can certainly benefit us in our time and place today if we read it correctly. So, you know, our world does show the same kinds of arrogance and oppression by human empires. So. We also need strong words of hope. 
Well, there's a lot to explore with apocalyptic literature, and we couldn't actually fit it all, fit it all in one episode. So next time, we're going to take a look at the other weird and wild book of Revelation. So if you want to read that ahead of time or take a look at it, uh, go ahead and, and do a little bit of advanced reading. As always, the Bible Reset podcast is brought to you by Changemakers, our community of donors who give monthly gifts of any amount to help us create resources that change the way people read the Bible. If you appreciate this podcast and you'd like to support our work, you can learn more at instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.